please feel free to join us at 6 p.m. Pine River Park today. Uh, the other thing that I'm going to make mention of, many of you already know this because we talked about it at our family meeting a few weeks ago, uh, but I, as of August 1st, am going to be going on sabbatical. So I'm going to be gone for the months of August and September um, just to do self-care. Um, it's been, this is my 19th year. Can you believe that? I know. I started when I was 11, okay, uh, as a pastor. Uh, so I have a whole bunch of different things. Why is that funny? No, no just kidding. Uh, uh, I have a whole bunch of different things that I will be doing during that time. Uh, I wish sabbatical was just a really long vacation, um, but it's actually the time for pastors to do the work they need to do. Uh, for the first time in my life, I'm going to see a counselor weekly for two months. So, uh, so I'll be doing that and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So pray for me while I'm on that, that God would just do the work that he needs to do in my life. Uh, that would be really meaningful to me. But I also want to say uh, we have a lot of plans laid out for this fall. We're at the beginning of a new phase for Center Church. None of those plans are stopping because I'm gone. Uh, so I want to just encourage you to dig in, to be excited, to be here, to be involved with that. The staff has a great uh, plan yeah, we talked about some of those things at the family meeting. So if you want more details on that, you can, uh, you can ask around and uh, we'll fill you in on that. The big thing I want you to know is when you notice that I'm not here, that's where I am. So, uh, so we're going to go to Acts chapter 20. We're making our way through the book of Acts. And uh, we're actually going to land kind of in 21 is where we'll, we'll end up at today. So in the 20th century... Uh, which was the last century, if you're wondering, there was this brilliant theologian and pastor, wicked smart guy. Uh, wicked smart's kind of an unfortunate turn of phrase right there. Really smart guy, uh, like crazy smart. He never even went to high school, never, never went to high school, never got past middle school because he just grew up in poverty, had to go out and, and make money for his family. His name was A.W. Tozer. He was so smart that even though he never went to high school, two universities... One, two, not one, but two, gave him honorary doctorate degrees, even though he never did any of the work because he was so smart. Now, just so you know, they don't like give those things out to be nice. They give them out because in some way they think associating themselves with you is going to reflect well on them. That's how smart he was, that these institutions of higher education thought associating themselves with this guy who never went to high school was going to reflect well on them. Crazy smart guy. Okay, he, uh, he said something really, really interesting. He said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Here's why. Nothing will influence your view of the world like what you think about God. What you think about God will determine how you view the world. What you think about God, what you think God is like, will determine how you think about yourself. It will determine how you view others. It will change everything about you. Do you if you're ever tempted to think that maybe like growing in my relationship with God or maturing in my faith doesn't matter, think again. Because what you think about God will determine everything you feel, everything you think, everything you say, Everything you do is influenced by what kind of a God you think God is. So we've been studying our way through this book of Acts. Now, uh, here's something, I, just, I don't know why I haven't mentioned this before. It, it seems self-explanatory, but the full title of the book of Acts is actually the Acts of the Apostles. Okay? It tells the story of the things 
that the apostles did. It tells the story of what was happening in the early church. And what we're going to see, what we have seen inarguably, and, and we'll just kind of walk through it today, is that what they believed about God determined every single thing they did with their lives. It was all based on what they thought about God. Okay, so we're just going to zero in on one particular apostle, the apostle Paul. We're going to land in chapter 21, but let's just journey really somewhat quickly from where Paul comes on the scene. Okay, so we'll, we'll scroll all the way back. Paul first comes on the scene about 20 years before this. You might remember the scene. It's at this scene where a group of really angry people are literally stoning to death a guy named Stephen because of his faith in Jesus. This horrible crime he, he committed of telling people the truth, that faith in Jesus is the way to be saved. And they were so angry about this that they literally drug him out of town and threw rocks at him until he was dead. And Saul was there leading the charge, lending his approval to their actions. Okay, so that's where we first see him come on the scene. He, he believes that God is a God of rules and punishment. And Stephen has broken the rules and deserves the punishment. That's Saul's view of God. His view of God has led him to violently oppose the message of anyone who believes in Jesus, to violently oppose Christianity. And in his zeal, he's attempting to stamp it out. Okay, that's, that's where he's at in his head when he first comes on the scene. That was way back in chapter 7. In chapter 8, we find Saul on the way to a town called Damascus. And on the way, he encounters the risen Jesus. Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you, why are you doing this? Saul has um, the blessing of the high priest to go to Damascus and arrest Christians, Christians. And Jesus shows up and says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? He's confronted by the resurrected Jesus. Now, sidebar, is there anything in your life that you feel so devoted to that you would willingly beat, arrest, and even kill someone just for disagreeing with you? Like, do you feel that way about anything? I kind of hope not, because that seems irrational to me. That seems a little over the top. But that's how strong Saul feels in his opposition to Christianity. Hopefully nothing would make you go to those lengths. But my question is, what would have to happen to make Saul, who feels so strongly, all of a sudden do a complete 180? And not just become a Christian, but become the most outspoken Christian on the planet. Like, you just have to realize, he went from the farthest extreme in his opposition to Jesus to the farthest extreme in his support of Jesus. What could possibly make a person swing that far? My contention is that the only thing that could have done that is that he actually, literally saw the resurrected Jesus. I just don't see how it's possible that anything could make him swing that far except for literally encountering the resurrected Jesus. In fact, it's interesting because Saul wasn't the only Jew who made this about face. There were thousands of, of Jews in the first couple of months after the resurrection who turned to Jesus 
They, they had real encounters with the resurrected Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit that we saw in the first few chapters of Acts. Thousands of people did this about face. So Jesus shows up. He sees Saul on the road. He's going to arrest Christians. And he says, Saul, you think this whole Christianity thing is a, is a farce? It's made up? But now you've seen me. Now you can't deny that I am who I said I am, that I am the savior of the world. So of course, put yourself in Saul's shoes. Now you believe. But not only does he believe, Jesus goes on to tell him something else. He says, Saul, I know that your belief has always been that the Jews are God's chosen people and that salvation and relationship with God, that belongs to the Jews. But you're actually going to now be the person who takes that message to the Gentile world, Gentiles being non-Jews. Jesus tells him, you're going to take the message out to the rest of the world, and wouldn't you know, that's exactly what happened. My contention is, the only thing powerful enough to have convinced him to make that kind of a switch is that he really did have an interaction with the real resurrected Jesus. Saul changed his thoughts and his actions about everything because what he believed about God had changed when he encountered Jesus. When he believed the truth about God, it turned his whole life in a new direction because what you believe about God really is the most important thing about you. It really will determine everything you do and say. And so eventually, Saul begins to take this message of God's grace through faith in Christ out into the non-Jewish world. He leaves the Jewish world. He starts taking the gospel into places that we know today as Western Asia and uh, Southern Europe. I'm just thinking, God, if you ever sent me out on a missionary journey, please send me to Italy. Right? Like, that's, where, that's kind of, you know, the part of the world that Saul went to. Like, please send me to, you know, the Mediterranean world. That would be great. Okay, so he goes out and he, he takes this... Um, he takes this message to other parts of the world, but like, okay, Saul, Paul, what's with the name change? What's the deal there? I don't know if you noticed, maybe you, maybe you wondered that, but his name changed along the way. Uh, same guy. Here's how, that, here's how that worked, okay? A few years ago, Brandy and I went to Costa Rica and, uh, with a group of other pastors, and one of our friends uh, at his church, which is in Northern California, his church calls him Pastor Michael. But when we would visit churches in Costa Rica, and we had awesome opportunity to just encourage those churches and spend time with them, when we were there, they called him Pastor Miguel. Makes sense, okay? So Saul grew up in this Hebrew context, in this Jewish world, but then he begins to leave and go into the Greek part of the world, the Gentile part of the world. So he had a Hebrew name, Saul, but Paul is his Greek name. Some people do contend that part of the reason for the name change was that Saul used to kill Christians and he converted his name to Paul so that people wouldn't like think he was still that guy. Um, uh, there might be some evidence for that, but basically he just switched from his uh, Hebrew name to his Greek name, if you've ever wondered why he changed his names. So here you have this Paul now. He used to be so zealous for the Old Testament law that he attempted to destroy the church altogether. He believed non-Jews to be totally inferior in every way, total racial bias. And yet he's now become 
the most successful evangelist, missionary, church planter to non-Jews probably that the world has ever seen. Okay? He's doing this among the Gentiles. Okay? Now, so, so you got that in your mind. You understand there's, there's friction, there's hatred, there's animosity between Jews and Gentiles. I just, I just want to paint that picture for you. Okay? Because one of the keys for us to take the Bible and actually pull out the life-giving power, one of the keys to be able to do that is our ability to, be, to take what we saw happening in their day and then cross what we called in Bible school the principalizing bridge to our day and say, okay, what does this tell me about my attitude, about my life, about the social issues of our day? Uh, we, we had a really good conversation in our community group the other night uh, about the church's position on various social issues. And the book of Acts has actually been hammering down on one of the big social issues of our day, like every single week. So much so that I've kind of just stopped addressing it every week because I felt like I was saying the same thing every, every week over and over and over. So let's, we're just going to practice taking, taking what was happening in Scripture crossing that principalizing bridge and seeing how does it work in my day? What does it mean today? Okay? So one of the things that the book of Acts has hammered on over and over and over again is the fact that God does not discriminate on the basis of race, gender, or socioeconomic status. Okay? The most devoted Jew, the most devoted Gentile hater, Paul, is now a missionary to the Gentiles. God is sending him to these people that he once viewed as unclean. Okay? God wants all people to know him. You might remember me saying something like this. The gospel is for people like you and people not like you. The gospel is for everyone. Okay? As if it couldn't get any more clear, I'm just going to quote to you from Galatians 3.28, which was written by Paul, a letter to the church at Galatia. This is what he said. He said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. In God's view, there are only those who have put their faith in Christ and those who have yet to do so. Those are the only two groups of people. So what's the principle? Okay, so what do I mine out of that and put it to work in my own heart and maybe change some of my own thoughts and attitudes because I know something about God that's different now. The principle is, if God shows no favoritism on these basis, then Christian, neither should you. If God shows no favoritism in this way, race, gender, socioeconomic status, then neither should I, neither should you. And Paul's life begins to reflect this new thinking, this new understanding that God wants everyone to know him. If God shows no favoritism, I shouldn't either. What Paul believed about God changed, and now his actions have changed to match. So you might remember this last week. Uh, we talked about miracles and why it seems like we see miracles all the time, like over and over and over and over and over and over, just constant stream of miracles in the New Testament. We, we talked about that last week, and uh, Paul, Paul was seeing some pretty miraculous, even strange things happening. Uh, back in chapter 19, in chapter 20, he does it again. He's been traveling around through Greece, 
Okay, and uh, what he's basically doing is he's going from town to town, and he's just preaching the gospel, teaching people that Jesus is the way to God. And he comes to this place called Troas in chapter 20. And he's basically teaching at a house church. And something very bizarre happens there. He's teaching from the scriptures. He's, he's basically using the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the savior of the world. And there's this guy named Eutychus who falls asleep while he's preaching. Um, man, if you can't stay awake while Paul's preaching, like, I am so sorry for you this morning because you got me. Uh, when I, I was a pastor at a church over in Puyallup, over in the Seattle area, and there was an older guy in our church named Harold. I know, it just doesn't make sense. Like, it was Harold, older guy? I know, hard to believe. And Harold would fall asleep every week, quite often before the service even started. Like, he'd show up like a half an hour early, and 20 minutes before the service, he'd just be asleep in the third row. Like, all the time. Like, literally, uh, maybe once or twice, he didn't. And I remember one week when he, he actually didn't fall asleep, he came up to me after the service and uh, he said, well, you didn't put me to sleep this time, so that's something. And I was like, Harold, coming from you, that must have been, that was amazing. I, that's the best encouragement I've gotten. That must have been my best sermon of all time to keep Harold awake. Well, Eutychus falls asleep, sitting in a window, falls out of the window to his death. Thankfully, that never happened with Harold. Uh, so Eutychus falls to his death. Paul goes outside, flops down on Eutychus' body, and God resurrects him. Eutychus gets up and comes back inside, and they carry on. And, like, this is normal stuff for Paul. Uh, this is not normal stuff for any of us. It's just bizarre to us. But, like, this is the kind of thing that happens. This is how strongly God is with him on his missionary journey. Now... You might remember, we talked about this last week, that he's on his way to Jerusalem, which is still like HQ, it's the headquarters of the church, right? He's headed to Jerusalem, and he's just stopping at all these other towns along the way, and his goal is, hopefully, he, he eventually wants to try and get to Rome. That's, that's where he's ultimately trying to get. Rome is the seat of power of the entire known world at that time. You, one thing that you just got to keep in mind, the, the New Testament is all written during the time of the Roman Empire, there has never been anything before or since like Rome. There's never been an empire as powerful as Rome in the Western world. So, so it's kind of a unique time in history. So Saul's traveling along, he, he leaves Troas and he comes to a town called Miletus. And when he gets to Miletus, he sends for the church leaders back in Ephesus. Okay, Ephesus, he was there last week, quite a bit of time's gone by. And he says, I want you guys to come meet me at Miletus. And he sends for them to give them some encouragement because he knows something they don't know. The church leaders come from Ephesus, and what Paul knows is they will never see him again. He tells them, you are never going to see my face again. It's this big emotional scene, and, you know, whatever. I'm told that I'm dead inside by my wife. I have no emotions, but... Uh, Paul knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to face heavy persecution. Uh, he knows that the Jews who were there when he was killing Christians, they're still there and they're ticked. He knows that he's going to be in trouble when he gets there. He's definitely going to be arrested, maybe even killed. Okay, now, there's this important detail that's happening in the background. In Jerusalem, there's Christians still there. Some of the people that we read about at the very beginning as the church was first born in Jerusalem, 
they're still there and they're living in poverty they're living under heavy persecution and Paul knows that that this is happening so what he does as he's traveling around the Gentile world is he begins to take up a collection to help the Christians who are suffering in Jerusalem okay now this is another one of those places where we can see what was happening in their day and we got to pull it out and cross the bridge to our day Okay, he encourages the Gentiles, the non-Jews, Jewish Christians, to support the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem by giving money. So they start to, they give Paul money. He's taking up collection. Some of them actually even go with Paul to Jerusalem so that they can be a personal encouragement to the church there. Okay, he's headed to Jerusalem with, with these funds and with some Gentile companions. And remember, they hate each other. Jews and Gentiles hate each other, but now they're supporting one another. Now they're giving money, even traveling personally to help each other. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can break down that wall, can take these two groups of people who were once at odds and give them something else to connect over, something bigger than their biases. When Christians embrace the truth of scripture, instead of bending it over to their cultural preference, powerful things can happen like this. But if they take the scripture and they bend it to their cultural preference, what happens? They move away from each other. If they just lean in the direction of their bias, but what they do is they take this gospel of grace that says the gospel is for everyone and it bends them together. That'll preach in our world. That's something we can use today. All through Paul's All through Paul's journey back to Jerusalem, he keeps receiving this message in his heart by the Holy Spirit that he's going to face resistance, persecution, arrest, extreme trial. The same people who executed Jesus are still waiting for him, but he's undeterred. He sets off headed for Jerusalem. Now, he just told the Christians at Ephesus, I'm never going to see you again. And it's because he knows that when he gets there, he's probably never going to be able to leave. He's not probably going to be a free man again. He's forfeiting his life to deliver this much needed help to the believers there. Now, you might remember last week, something that I said was that it seems, it seems as we've been reading through the story that Paul is actually angling to get the gospel to one particular person. And we'll see how this plays out in the weeks ahead. But what he's actually angling toward is he's trying to gain, it seems, an audience with Caesar, the most powerful person in the world, thinking, if, if I can just get the gospel to Caesar and the Holy Spirit does a work in Caesar's heart, just think of the impact it could have. That's what Paul's trying to accomplish, it seems, and he's willing to pay any price. So let's just, let's just walk through these last few verses in chapter 21. This is the section that I just told you all of that to get to. They're continuing on their journey. They pass through a number of towns and they eventually stop at a place called Caesarea. I just want to look at what happens in Caesarea. Chapter 21, verse 10. It says, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owners of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh. 
confirmation of what Paul has been thinking all along. When I get to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to arrest me, and then they're going to hand me over to the Romans for prosecution. Agabus comes and says, Paul, you're going to be bound up and imprisoned because of the message that you proclaim about Jesus. And the Jews are going to do whatever's necessary to shut you up. Verse 12, it says, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Paul, this once hyper-zealous opponent of Christ, this, this violent person who wanted to stamp out the church, is now ready to die for the cause of Jesus, for the name of Jesus. And my question is, why? He's gone from such one polar extreme to the other. It's such a big chasm. Why does he not only believe in Jesus, because that's one thing, but then he took the step of giving his life to serving Jesus and spreading this message of God's grace, and now he says, I'm even willing to give up my life for the name of Jesus. Why? The answer is, if you've been observing through the story, Paul is so fully vested in the scriptures. We've seen him throughout Acts going from place to place, traveling around and teaching people from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. He, he, pulls, he pulls out the storyline of the Old Testament and says, Jesus is the answer that we're looking for. He's so convinced by the scripture. See, the scripture, what we call the Bible, is God's word. It's God's self-disclosure for you. If you want to know what God is like, you can. It's in the Bible. Paul wrote to his understudy, Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.14, he said, Continue in the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the Bible is powerful because it's God's Word. It's able to make you wise. It's able to teach you and to rebuke and correct you if necessary. It's able to train you. It says that if you get the Bible into your head and your heart, you'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, what is that? Every good work. Like to just go around and do a bunch of nice stuff? That phrase is used several times in the New Testament to mean God's will or God's plan for your life. If you get the scripture, the Bible, into your head and your heart, you will be thoroughly equipped to execute God's plan for your life. I think I spend way too much time trying to avoid discomfort, trying to avoid pain. Uh, I think we spend so much time trying to avoid hard things and trying to stay in our comfort zone that quite often we just completely miss it. But Paul is thoroughly equipped for God's plan. He knew his purpose, and he was committed to it no matter what, co what it cost him. Okay, so I was at the store one time. There was a big stack of books right inside the door on the table. Same book. And I picked it up, and I turned to the first page, and the first line of the book was, it's not about you. And I thought, well, that'll never sell. <laughs> like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold off. I'm going to cop this one off the 99-cent rack in about three weeks. 
Well, as it turns out, the Purpose Driven Life had a tidy little profit. Uh, sold a few of those bad boys. Actually, one of the best-selling books of our entire generation. And that was the first line. Why was it so popular? I'd much rather read something that is about me. You see, Rick Warren, who wrote the book, he was scratching at something that we all long for. Purpose. Every single person here wants to live a life that matters for something. All of us have this... All of us would hate to end up in a situation where we just feel irrelevant. All of us want to have purpose in our life, to know that our life matters for something. You know why Paul was content to die for Jesus? Because he knew that his purpose was to glorify God by sharing this message of God's grace. Pastor Rick read from chapter 20, verse 24. He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. His only goal was to finish the good work of being a witness to God's grace. He gave his life away to the good work of showing God's grace to the world. In giving his life away, he found his deepest possible purpose. By, by actually giving it away, he gained it. So this is what I want you to do before we go. I want you to consider these words of Jesus. I want you to consider the truth. Consider the possibility that Jesus is actually handing you the key to the deepest sense of purpose and meaning that you could possibly have in your life. Found in Matthew 10, verse 39. Jesus said, whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What about the implication there? Whoever scratches and claws to serve themselves to get what they can in this life, that's all they get. Whatever you get is what you get. And when it's over, it's over. But whoever seeks me Jesus says, and my purposes first will gain a life so valuable, will gain a purpose so valuable that they'll cherish it above everything else. And that's exactly what we see happen in Paul's case. So let me just read that first paragraph of the Purpose Driven Life. It says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment. It's far greater than your peace of mind or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. Ephesians says that God has extended His love and grace to you so that you can participate in the good plans that He has for you. You might be at a spot where you're thinking, doesn't seem like God has a lot of good plans for me. Seems like there's a lot of bad plans for me right now. Those are part of your story. That's, that's a real thing. But friends, your purpose for being on the earth is to bring glory to God by showing and telling of His grace. You're a student, be a student for God's glory. You're a parent, be a parent for God's glory. You're a friend, be a friend for God's glory. You got a job, go to that job for God's glory. That's your purpose. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me. I want to pray together. But I want to consider this one, last, this one last thought, this one last statement. 
When you believe that God has called you to something bigger than yourself, it changes everything about you. When you believe that God has called you to something bigger than yourself, it changes everything about you. You need a change? Believe that God has called you to something bigger than yourself. He's called you to glorify Him. So I just want to pray and ask God to just embed that in our hearts, the understanding that He's called you. I know, you might be thinking, yeah, not me. I'm just me. He's called you. You got the microphone, Pastor Kelly. He's called you and me. God, thank you that in your goodness and your kindness that you've given us this opportunity to participate in your good work of making all things new. God, I pray you'd help us to see it through that lens, to anticipate big things, to anticipate that the next season will be even better than the last. God, that you're going to do new and better things in us and through us. Lord, I pray you'd help us to go out the door and live for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Ray.